Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 73, The Abdication of Tsar Nicholas. Hello everyone, and welcome back. In our last episode, we completed our examination of the factors which led the United States into the First World War. We will have more to say about the United States further down the line, but for now, we are going to swing over to Russia to look at yet another momentous event, which, like America's intervention, is one of the seminal moments of the 20th century, the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. But before we jump into things, we do need to quickly address the issue regarding Russian and Western calendars. During the First World War, Russia continued to use the old-style Julian calendar, which is dated 13 days behind our Western Gregorian calendar. This means that an event dated March 1st in Russia will be dated March 14th in Western Europe and North America. This discrepancy can be a bit confusing, especially since it's up to the author to decide which calendar to use. For this episode, I've decided to stick with the Julian calendar, so all dates will correspond with when they took place in Russia. So if you notice some of the dates don't exactly match up, just remember, Julian calendar, 13 days behind. So we left Russia in a bit of a tough spot back in episode 68 part B. 28 months of war had left the country teetering on the brink of collapse. By 1917, Russia had lost some 2.7 million men, either killed, wounded, or missing, while another 4 million were prisoners. Although the Brusilov Offensive had provided a glimmer of hope, the optimism it established had faded by the winter. Russia's inability to prevent Romania's collapse was another embarrassment for the Tsar's regime, and over the following weeks, military censors and police reports warned of growing unrest in the rank and file. By the winter of 1916, the criticisms directed at the regime became guttural, and morale was at an all-time low. On December 29th, senior commanders agreed the army would not be ready for a spring offensive. In all, the military situation was poor, and things on the home front were no better. The winter of 1916-1917 was bitterly cold. The average temperature in Petrograd hovered at a chilling negative 25 degrees centigrade. Homes were kept dark for lack of coal, and with the army requisitioning so many resources, this left the average Russian to fend for themselves. Russia was in the grips of a food crisis, and while Britain, France, Germany, and Austria-Hungary had introduced some form of organized rationing system, Russia had nothing of the sort. The food crisis that winter was a harbinger of things to come. The crisis was not the result of ruined harvests or blockade, but the ineptitude of the Tsarist regime. Nothing had been done to ameliorate the ongoing transportation issues. Huge stockpiles of foodstuffs, equipment, and other essential materials lay dormant in ports and warehouses across the country. Half the locomotives were out of service, and those still in operation were overloaded to the point where cracked rails and overheated engines became regular occurrences. Food shipments to the cities plummeted, which created an ever-critical attitude of the Tsar and his ministers. In places like Petrograd, Tsaritsyn, and Moscow, 
Women spent hours waiting in bread queues, only to be turned away empty-handed. Some women slept on the street to hold their place for the next day's shipment, if that shipment ever arrived. To make matters worse, urban families did not have firewood for cooking or heating. Winter illnesses spiked, and children were forcibly kept indoors. In all, things were not good under the Tsarist regime. In Petrograd, the calls for a change in government grew louder by the day, as tensions between regime and subjects simmered. Police reports were frequently peppered with grim warnings of an inevitable uprising. The only question was where and in what form. Among those who claimed total ignorance of the problems facing the empire was the 49-year-old emperor, Tsar Nicholas Alexandrovich Romanov II. While Tsar Nicholas was not an evil man, his aloofness and weapons-grade inability to grasp complexity made him the worst type of leader to have in a time of crisis. After taking personal command of the military in 1915, Tsar Nicholas spent most of his days at Stavka headquarters in Mogilev, a city 800 kilometers south of Petrograd near the Belarusian border. At Mogilev, Nicholas occupied himself with the mundane tasks of military leadership. He held conferences with officers, pored over documents, and met with various officials as they came and went. Moreover, Nicholas surrounded himself with some of the regime's most loyal subjects, old aristocratic officers and ministers who were in no rush to address the grumbling leviathan outside their door. In short, Nicholas isolated himself in an environment which was friendly to him, a place where he had influence, where his commands were obeyed, and where all news was good news, a place where everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. With the Tsar off playing soldier, his wife, Empress Alexandra Vedavrona, was left in charge of the domestic sphere. It will be remembered that Empress Alexandra was a woefully unpopular figure in both the palace and public eye. Despite being fully committed to her adopted nation, her German heritage was always the source of ridicule. She was often accused of being a German agent, working to sabotage the regime from within. Although such accusations were baseless, it should be noted that Alexandra's particular style of governance did little to stop the rumor mill. As regent, Alexandra was a firm believer in a strong, centralized monarchy. Her husband was the God-anointed ruler of Russia, and she was determined to do everything in her power to protect that contract. Thus, she developed a bad habit of dismissing any minister she suspected of disloyalty. This produced a revolving door of ministers, some of whom served fewer than three months before resigning or being shuffled off elsewhere. Since 1914, Russia had seen four different interior ministers, four different prime ministers, four ministers of agriculture, three transport ministers, and two foreign ministers. Alexandra was not the only problem, of course. Like her husband, she believed Russia's problems were temporary, that the growing calls for reform was the handiwork of dissenters and saboteurs. In short, Nicholas and Alexandra were totally disconnected to the plight of their subjects. To put it cruelly, they didn't understand, nor could they be bothered to try. In all, the social contract between ruler and subject was broken, 
and it was only a matter of time before someone did something. Thus, on the frigid night of December 30th, 1916, the first shots of revolution were fired. The bullets which tore into Rasputin marked the beginning of the end of the Romanov dynasty. Although Rasputin's influence on events in 1917 remains a source of debate, his death certainly undermined and shattered Tsardom's all-powerful aura. The assassins, who were members of the Romanov clan, believed removing the monk would restore the monarchy's credibility. Instead, it made things much worse. The murder of Alexandra's religious mentor and closest advisor caused the family to close ranks. They steeled themselves against criticism, and chose to believe any concessions now would be viewed as a sign of weakness. They also dismissed any official who had spoken ill of Rasputin, and replaced them with hardened loyalists. For example, Prime Minister Alexander Trepov, who was appointed in November 1916, was dismissed in January after two months on the job. Trepov's replacement was 67-year-old Nikolai Galitsyn, a trenchant monarchist who wept and begged the Tsar to reconsider. Galitsyn's time as Prime Minister would end after 45 days. Meanwhile, the first wave of protests began in Petrograd on January 9th. That morning, 150,000 workers took to the streets, demanding reform and greater accountability of the regime. The protests of January 9th marked the 12th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, when 4,000 protesters were gunned down at the Winter Palace back in 1905. However, the public's mood had shifted since then. The protests that erupted in January were decisively political. Gone were candlelit vigils of the Tsar and royal family. Instead, the protesters held banners denouncing their regime. They flew red flags and demanded a new government answerable to the people. Over the coming days, marches spread across the country, reaching Moscow, Kharkov, and faraway Baku, down in occupied Azerbaijan. In all, these demonstrations were nonviolent, but their growing size and frequency testified to the people's mood. In 1905, the people had scattered at the sight of armed troops. In 1917, they were going to be heard, and they were not going away. But there were those inside Russia who long identified that only decisive change could save the country. Reforming Russia's political and economic systems had been the Duma's main priority since its formation back in 1905. Established at the end of the Russo-Japanese War, the Duma was Russia's answer to representative assembly. Although far from a parliamentary democracy, the Duma was a place where political discourse, debate, and public opinion was tolerated, and its membership was made up of several political parties from across the ideological spectrum. Unfortunately, the Duma lacked real legislative power. In reality, it was little more than Nicholas's pet parliament, best exemplified by the large portrait of the Tsar that hung in the main chamber of the Tourade Palace. If Nicholas desired, he could ignore the Duma's recommendations altogether. He also had the authority to dissolve the Duma if he felt the conversation veered too far out of his comfort zone. By 1917, the relationship between Duma and regime was at the point of no repair. 
The Duma had supported the monarchy back in 1914, but with the war going from bad to worse, the Duma had become increasingly critical. In November 1916, it denounced the regime outright, when Pavel Milyakov, leader of the cadets, asked a straightforward question. Was Russia's current state the result of treason or stupidity? Since Milyakov's justified inquiry, the Duma and regime rarely saw eye to eye. The man responsible for keeping the lines of communication open was the Duma's president, Mikhail Rodzienko. Mikhail Rodzienko is in many ways a tragic figure in our story. As Duma president, Rodzienko had the unenviable task of balancing his own political views with those of the Duma majority. Rodzienko was fiercely loyal to the Tsar, but the Tsar did not take him seriously. Nicholas would poke fun at his weight, and refer to him as the fattest man in the empire. Nicholas would cut their meeting short, or cancel them at the last minute. When they did meet, Nicholas chose to ignore what Rodzienko had to tell him. He saw Rodzienko as an annoyance, rather than an ally who could keep him updated on public sentiment. However, the Duma had been taken surprise by the scope of the January protests. Although its members were not surprised to see popular discontent, none of the parties could claim responsibility. The January protests had been a popular movement from the bottom up, without the guidance of political leaders or ideology, and this was dangerous for two reasons. One, it showed the people no longer feared the central regime, and two, it directly exposed the Duma's inefficiencies. After all, the Duma had had 12 years to bring reform, and although its powers were limited, those limitations had rendered it largely redundant. If the central government was ignored and Duma bypassed, there was going to be serious problems. In short, Rodzienko believed Russia was flirting with anarchy, and he had no idea what would happen next. From the Duma's perspective, the Tsar was not wholly responsible for Russia's problems. They knew the type of man he was. He was kind and wanted to do well. Unfortunately, Nicholas did not know how to do well. He did not reject modernity because he enjoyed watching people suffer. He rejected it because it conflicted with everything he had been brought up to believe. He inherited a regime entrusted to him by his father and God which made Nicholas deeply conservative and noticeably fatalistic. Thus, Nicholas came to rely on ministers who said the things Nicholas wanted to hear. Reform-minded ministers were quickly weeded out, leaving behind a cabal of ministers whose personal loyalties counted for more than their merits. By 1917, none of Nicholas's ministers was more hated and disliked than the Minister of Interior a man whose name I'm probably going to horribly mispronounce, Alexander Protopopov. Alexander Protopopov was an interesting character. He was the Russian Empire's fourth and final interior minister, and came from the same city as Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Kerensky, that being the city of Simbirsk on the western Volga. Unlike Lenin or Kerensky, Protopopov made his way into politics through his business connections, eventually joining the Duma under Rodzienko's tutelage. 
but upon his appointment to the ministry in September 1916, Protopopov underwent a radical transformation. Once a reform-minded constitutionalist, he became a committed arch-reactionary overnight, who believed it was his divine mission to defend the monarchy no matter the cost. He turned his back on the Duma, and became a trenchant monarchist who yielded his police authority like a weapon, aimed at stamping out any revolutionary activity. From there, things got even more bizarre. When he became minister, Protopopov was deeply unwell. His mental state was slowly deteriorating, most likely caused from advanced syphilis or progressive spine paralysis. I've seen both, depending on the source. To treat his illnesses, Protopopov fell in with Rasputin, who quickly subjugated him and made Protopopov another political tool. After the monk's assassination, Protopopov became deeply superstitious. He kept an idol of Rasputin on his desk, and held nightly seances where he claimed to be in contact with Rasputin's ghost. He even went so far as to recreate the monk's daily routine with the empress. This included a morning phone call where he would recite what Rasputin had told him during the seance. As I said, bizarre stuff. But what does Pradipapa's behavior have to do with our story? Well, there are a few areas of note. First, his connections to Rasputin made him one of Alexandra's most trusted advisors. Although he was clearly unfit, this made him indispensable to the Empress, and by extension, the Tsar. Second, as Minister of Interior, Protopopov was responsible for three critical areas. The police force, the transportation network, and food distribution. If there was to be any hope of reform, Protopopov had to go. In fact, his resignation was the only thing the Duma unanimously demanded. But Tsar Nicholas ignored every call to dismiss him. He became so annoyed that he prorogued the Duma, which barred it from holding any meetings throughout January. It was obvious that Nicholas would not listen to his own people, but maybe he would heed the advice of a foreigner. That foreigner was the British ambassador George Buchanan, who went to see Nicholas at Mogilev on January 14th. George Buchanan was a veteran diplomat, with some 41 years experience under his belt. Known for his frank and direct approach to diplomacy, he was close with both Tsar Nicholas and Mikhail Rodzienko. In his memoir, Buchanan recounts his conversation with Nicholas with vivid detail. What their discussion amounted to was Buchanan scolding the Tsar for failing to see reason. Buchanan warned, that Rasputin's assassination was not some random act of violence, and that the revolutionary language was not the idle gossip of bored soldiers. It was real, and it would only get worse if things did not change. In short, Nicholas had a choice. Reform or ruin. To quote Buchanan, You have, sir, come to the parting of the ways, and you have now to choose between two paths the one to lead you to victory and glorious peace, the other to revolution and disaster." End quote. For a foreign diplomat to use such language against a national sovereign 
was a major breach of etiquette. But it is testament to how serious things had gotten. Unfortunately, Buchanan's pleas failed to make an imprint. The Tsar maintained his sublimely detached position. In early February, Rodzienko met with Nicholas and presented a list of problems that needed immediate addressing. Rodzienko barely made it halfway through when the Tsar cut him off, saying he did not have time for misinformation. Protopopov assured him everything was fine, and that even if unrest occurred, there were some 100,000 troops in Petrograd ready for deployment. What Nicholas failed to consider was that those 100,000 troops were a mix of new recruits and disgruntled veterans. These men had spent months idling in the city, complaining about the war and seeing firsthand the civilian plight. If Nicholas thought these were the guys to prop up their regime, he was sadly mistaken. Meanwhile, the urban unrest continued intermittently throughout January and February. In the meantime, a delegation of Allied representatives arrived in Petrograd on January 29th. This was the Petrograd Arms Summit we talked about in Episode 68 Part B. Nicholas was fortunate there were no major disturbances during the month-long summit. However, this did not stop soldiers and the public from voicing their opinions on the current state of affairs. On February 21st, the Allied delegation boarded their ship and sailed for home. Less than 48 hours after the delegation's departure, Petrograd was engulfed in another spontaneous uprising. This time, it was women who led the march, because it wouldn't be a real revolution without a women's march. By 1917, women comprised 55% of Petrograd's labor force. Most of them held unskilled, poorly paid jobs in the textile industries, and worked grueling 12- and 13-hour days. They left work only to stand for hours in long bread lines, and then returned home to care for their elderly relatives and often sick children. By 1917, infant mortality rates in Petrograd were alarmingly high, with as many as half of all children dying before the age of three. Petrograd's working women correctly understood that the intolerable situation was the result of gross mismanagement. They were angry, frustrated, hungry, and tired of watching their families suffer while their husbands, brothers, and sons were away at the battlefront. So, on February 23rd, more than 7,000 women took to the streets of Petrograd. It was also International Women's Day, an event initiated in 1909 to recognize the rights of working women. Although the Women's Day strike was initially aimed at addressing bread and working conditions, it soon expanded in scope. Their slogans rapidly grew to include denunciations of the government. They chanted, down with the Tsar, and down with the Empress. By the late afternoon, some 100,000 workers, men and women, from a variety of occupations, had joined the march. And things were only getting started. As the protesters headed towards the city center, many anticipated a repeat of Bloody Sunday. Petrograd's military governor ordered Cossack cavalry, police, and city garrisons to clear important arteries by force. But as more workers joined the march, the crowds grew bolder. Some carried knives, 
others planks of wood or bricks. Anything which could be used as a weapon if things turned sour. Fortunately, there was no repeat of Bloody Sunday, largely due to the brave stand of Petrograd's working women against the Cossacks. The Cossacks were among the regime's most loyal Praetorians. These colorful riders inspired a mix of awe and fear wherever they went, and their ferocity in battle was the stuff of legend. When the two bodies met, the women in the crowd stepped forward and approached the phalanx. They pleaded with the Cossacks, reminding them that they too had mothers, wives, sisters, and children who were hungry. Remarkably, and to the shock of all, the Cossacks laid down their lances. The Cossack defection was a deeply ominous moment for the regime. Once the most feared weapon in its arsenal, a wave of pragmatism had overcome them. The Cossacks bore no animosity towards the working people. They could see the desperation on their faces and knew this was not a march against boredom. The Cossacks stood aside. Some joined the ranks of the march, adding their mounds and lances to the pulsing crowd. Elsewhere in the city, events were not as peaceful. Although the Cossack defection stunned the authorities and remaining loyal units, it was not universal. Street fighting broke out in pockets around the city. Windows were smashed, people wrestled with police, while the Cossacks clashed with the military. In one instance, a police captain was impaled by a Cossack lance, much to the cheer and approval of the crowd. In short, Petrograd was slipping into anarchy. At night, the crowds thinned, but returned in the morning with greater numbers. Curfews were ignored, and posters declaring martial law were ripped down. The tide was turning, and in the city garrisons, mutiny appeared more attractive by the day. The first mutiny occurred in the evening of February 26th, when soldiers from the Volinsky Regiment shot their commanding officer and began erecting barricades outside. Similar mutinies took place in garrisons across the city, resulting in the crowds taking on a very unusual form, a mixture of men and women, old and young, students, Cossacks, police, and military. As more soldiers joined their ranks, the crowd grew more ambitious. They raided police stations and armories. They stormed the city jails and freed common criminals, in addition to detained strikers and mutineers. Not only did the strikers outnumber the city guard, they outgunned them too. For all intents and purposes, Petrograd, the imperial capital, had fallen. So you may be asking, where was the Tsar and where was the Duma during all of this? Tsar Nicholas was at Stavka headquarters in Mogilev, 500 kilometers away from the city. But he was receiving updates from Rodzienko and the Empress. Empress Alexandra was in Tsarsko Silo, just south of the capital. This put her much closer to the action, but she remained marvelously aloof. Her telegrams to the Tsar reflect this total misjudgment. For example, she wrote to her husband on February 27th, quote, It is a hooligan movement. Young boys and girls are running around and screaming that they have no bread, 
only to excite, then the workmen preventing others from the work. If it were very cold, they would probably stay indoors. But this will all pass and quiet down if the Duma would only behave itself. One does not dare print the worst speeches. End quote. Enraged by events, and quite wrongly blaming the Duma for the disturbances, Nicholas responded by proroguing the Duma once again. This was a grave mistake. For their part, the Duma was trying to get a grip on things. Rodzienko flooded the Tsar with telegraphs, and his messages painted a distressing picture. Rodzienko warned that the capital was nearly lost, and unless a new government was appointed, the city could not be saved. As Rodzienko dictated, the crowd surged into the Tauride Palace, engulfing the entrance and jamming the hallways with bodies. With fewer than three meters separation, Rodzienko was face to face with the revolution. Fortunately, Rodzienko was not their target, but their message to the Tsar was clear and unified. Either appoint a new government answerable to the Duma, or abdicate the throne. Events in Petrograd were moving at a lightning's pace, and what we see between February 26th and March 2nd is a flurry of corresponding incidences taking place at various locations around the city. The first thing we need to hit on is the declaration of two separate governments in Petrograd, the first being the Provisional Committee, and the second being the Petrograd Soviet. The Provisional Committee and Petrograd Soviet formed at almost the exact same time and were largely in response to one another. There are a lot of moving parts, so we won't get bogged down in the details, but let us quickly synthesize how the Committee and Soviet came to be. First up, we will discuss the Provisional Committee. The Provisional Committee was formed as a direct response to the Tsar's latest suspension of the Duma. On February 28th, Rodzienko chose to ignore the Tsar's order, and summoned a meeting of the party bosses in his office. At 8 o'clock that morning, the party leaders agreed they had run out of time. Nicholas was not going to respond to their requests, so instead of waiting for royal assent, they went ahead and declared a new government on their own. The Provisional Committee was formally announced on the morning of February 28th. Its full name was the Provisional Committee of Duma Members for the Restoration of Order in the Capital and the Establishment of Relations with Individuals and Institutions, but all henceforth stick to the colloquial Provisional Committee. As its lengthy name indicates, the Provisional Committee's main purpose was to re-establish law and order in the city. While it lacked real legal authority, it existed primarily so there was some semblance of organization. After Nicholas's abdication, the committee would eventually receive royal assent, thereby transforming it into the provisional government. But many felt the committee was not enough. After all, its ranks were comprised of Duma politicians with old Rodzienko at the helm. The problem was that the winter uprisings were not orchestrated by the Duma. It was a people's movement, and given Rodzienko's loyalty to the regime, 
there was a concern the committee would be just more of the same. The people needed a platform where their voices could be heard. Furthermore, there was also the question about what to do with the soldiers who mutinied, who now loitered in the streets with nothing to do. It is estimated that Petrograd saw 170,000 mutinies in February alone. Thus, on February 28th, the Petrograd Soviet was declared. Now, the Petrograd Soviet was not the first Soviet to be formed. The word Soviet stems from the Russian word for council, and the first Soviets were small workers' councils set up in urban and rural areas back in 1905. But given the upheaval in Petrograd, this newly declared Soviet amassed a wide influence right from the start. Its membership consisted of one delegate from each company of revolutionary soldiers, and one delegate for each thousand workers. The Provisional Committee and Petrograd Soviet were automatically at odds with one another. Fortunately, confrontation was averted through the efforts of one individual, a man who was perhaps the most well-known figure to emerge from the February Revolution, 36-year-old Alexander Kerensky. Alexander Fedoverovich Kerensky made his way into the political sphere as an impassioned reformer and public speaker. In his youth, Kerensky traveled to every corner of Russia, defending political prisoners and the rights of urban workers. Unlike Protopopov or Rodzienko, Kerensky came from modest roots. His father had been a teacher, who introduced his son to a range of local literature. Unlike his childhood neighbor, Lenin, Kerensky rejected Marxism, believing it relied too heavily on foreign principles which did not reflect Russia's unique situation. Throughout his legal and political career, Kerensky set himself apart from his contemporaries. Where men like Rodzienko fashioned themselves in the traditional politician's garb, Kerensky crafted a new image. He was clean-shaven and chose a neutral black tunic instead of the black tie and frock coat. By 1917, Kerensky embodied the type of politician the people wanted. Wherever he went, to palaces or workshops, he took time to talk to the invisibles, the doormen, servers, the cleaners, and so on. Thus, Kerensky was one of the few Duma men the Soviet had any faith in. Although Kerensky was a minor player in the Duma, the Soviet's emergence suddenly propelled him into the national spotlight. Kerensky would often serve as a go-between. He helped negotiate agreements and maintained the level of cooperation. It was here where Kerensky was able to amass a disproportionate level of influence. But we'll have more to say of that a little bit later. In order for the committee and Soviet to work, there had to be compromises on both ends. The Soviet did not trust the Duma, while the Duma feared the Soviet was an undisciplined mob. So, we come now to one of the key legislative decisions which will cast a long shadow over post-abdication Russia. The Soviet's Order Number 1. Boiled down to its essentials, Order Number 1 was a list of demands put forth by the soldiers of the Petrograd Soviet. It consisted of seven points, and called for greater legal representation among the rank and file. 
In other words, it called for the formation of a pseudo-military labor union. Officers were now to be addressed as Mr. General or Mr. Colonel, and the rules governing off-duty soldiers were relaxed. However, the most significant change proposed by Order No. 1 was outlined in Point Number 4. Point 4 read, and I quote, The orders of the Duma are to be obeyed only when they are not in contradiction with the orders and decrees of the Soviet. End quote. Point number four will become really important once the provisional government is established. Essentially, what point number four outlined was that the Duma would never have authority over the military. Remember, there was still a war on, and there were serious concerns about what a new government would do once the Tsar was gone. Would this new government sue for peace? Would it continue to fight on? If the new government chose to fight on, then it would need the Soviets' permission to do so. Essentially, Order Number 1 stripped the tools of war away from the government. No more men or guns unless the Soviets signed off. So what we see here is the formation of a dual government, with the Provisional Committee on the one hand and the Petrograd Soviet on the other. However, we should not forget that while all this was taking place, Tsar Nicholas was still nominally in power. So let us now turn and end off the episode with Nicholas's final moments as Emperor of all of Russia. As mentioned earlier, Tsar Nicholas spent the final days of his regime at Stavka headquarters in Bogolev. There, he remained willfully ignorant of events in the capital. He ignored Rodzienko's warnings, and assured the Empress that it would all be over soon. What Nicholas failed to realize was that Petrograd was already lost, and his influence as Tsar was dangerously weak. Even the army had begun to question their loyalty. His generals, Brusilov among them, had written to Commander-in-Chief Mikhail Alexeyev, expressing their support for a transition of government. This was emphasized on March 1st, when Nicholas ordered the defunct general, Nikolai Ivanov, to march on Petrograd. Ivanov barely made it halfway there before his men defected. However, what did finally prompt Nicholas to action was news that his son, the Tsarevich Alexis, had fallen ill with the measles. Alexis's temperature spiked at 104, and the Empress was beside herself with grief. She wrote to Nicholas several times per day, updating him on their son's condition. Being the good family man that he was, Nicholas wanted to be there. So on the morning of February 28th, he boarded his train en route to Tsarsko Silo, a near 20-hour journey which would take him through long stretches of swamps and lowlands. Although the Imperial train was equipped with a primitive telegraph machine, it would not be enough to make up for the delay. Nicholas would be out of contact for hours at a time. When the train rolled out of Mogilev at 5 a.m. that morning, it was not long before the revolution caught wind. Now, many comparisons have been made between Nicholas's journey to Tsarsko Silo and Louis XVI's failed escape to Varennes. To be clear, Tsar Nicholas was not fleeing Russia, nor was he attempting to smuggle his family out. 
In fact, there is little evidence to suggest that Nicholas ever felt his family was in danger, further proof of his total misjudgment. Nicholas was going to Tsarsko Silo because he felt being with his family was more important than saving the empire. However, the trip to Tsarsko Silo is symbolic for another reason. When word arrived in Petrograd, it confirmed what many had already suspected, that the Imperial Council had collapsed. On February 28th, Alexander Protopopov turned himself in, where he reported that the other ministers had resigned and fled. Protopopov, who spent the night hiding in a tailor shop, was marched away into captivity. The former interior minister would spend the rest of his life as a prisoner. His mental health continued to deteriorate, to the point where he was admitted to a military hospital and diagnosed with hallucinations. There, he spent the rest of his days until October 1917, when the Bolsheviks sentenced him to death. Meanwhile, Nicholas continued his journey to Tsarsko Silo. In the early morning of March 1st, his train was 100 kilometers south of the capital, when it ground to a halt. An officer boarded the train and informed the imperial entourage that revolutionaries had seized the rail lines to the capital. The only way to Petrograd was a detour which would take them west towards Piskov, a city near the Estonian border. Nicholas arrived at Piskov just after 2 a.m. on March 1st. There, he was greeted by General Nikolai Rzuski, commander of the Northern Army Group. Rzuski was the first official outside the entourage to see the Tsar since he departed Mogilev. Thus, it fell to Rzuski to deliver the bad news. Rzuski presented all the telegrams that had been sent over the past 24 hours, and in all, they painted a damning image. In Petrograd, the mood had shifted. Rodzienko's telegrams outlined that the crowd was no longer demanding a new government, but the Tsar's immediate arrest and forced abdication. Even worse were the reports from his officers. Alexeyev and Brusilov were both in favor of abdication. Nicholas knew what this meant. He had lost the army. Those who were present when Nicholas received the news noted how the emperor turned pale and had to brace himself against the wall. After a long pause, Nicholas turned to Rzuski and made the most important announcement of his life. He was going to abdicate in favor of his son, Alexis. But there was a problem. Remember, Alexis was bedridden with the measles. The boy also suffered from hemophilia. He was not allowed to ride a horse, and his daily schedule was based around as little physical activity as possible. There was also the question of the child's safety. There was no guarantee the royal family would be allowed to stay in Russia, and the prospect of being exiled while Alexis stayed behind was too much for Nicholas to contemplate. Instead, Nicholas chose to abdicate to his brother, the Grand Duke Michael. Later that day, two delegates from the Duma, Alexander Guchkov and Vasily Shulgin, arrived in Piskov. Guchkov and Shulgin were there to offer Nicholas one last chance at abdication, except Nicholas had already done so. Guchkov and Shulgin then produced the abdication document. 
After a few personal edits, Tsar Nicholas signed the form. After 23 years, his reign was at an end. In his final message as Tsar, Nicholas called for unity. He did not want a civil war, and hoped that stepping aside would usher a peaceful transition. Nicholas reminded the people that he was not the enemy, the Germans were, and warned that foreign foes would seek to capitalize on the opportunity. Quote, In these decisive days in the life of Russia, we deem it our duty to do what we can to help our people draw together and unite all their forces for the speedier attainment of victory. For this reason, we, in agreement with the State Duma, think it is best to abdicate the throne of the Russian state, and to lay down the supreme power. Not wishing to be separated from our beloved son, we hand down our inheritance to our brother, the Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich, and give him our blessing on mounting the throne of the Russian Empire. End quote. Grand Duke Michael heard of his brother's abdication on March 3rd, and he was horrified to discover he had been named successor. Michael was 39 years of age, and never once expected to be emperor. But here he was, granted authority in the midst of a revolution caught in the tempest of a world war. Michael politely excused himself. He met with members of the Provisional Committee that evening, and after a brief discussion, Michael decided to pass. A second Romanov Emperor had abdicated. Except this time, Michael abdicated in favor of a new cabinet, proposed by the Provisional Committee. With the passing of the baton, the Provisional Committee became the Provisional Government, which would attempt to govern Russia for the next eight months. Its ranks were comprised of experienced Duma officials. Prince Georgi Lvov would be premier, with Pavel Milyakov and Alexander Guchkov becoming Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of War. The Minister of Justice was Alexander Kerensky, whose dual influence with the Soviet would be indispensable. But that is a story for another day. Inside Russia, the people reacted to the abdication with mixed emotions. The public welcomed it, as did the Soviet. But like any government changeover, there was cause for concern. What would happen now? How would the food and transportation issues be solved? Would Russia sue for peace? Meanwhile, the question over what to do with the royal family remained. Men like Rodzienko, Guchkov, and Shulgin believed the monarchy still had a role, while Kerensky disagreed. There was some talk of exile to the Crimea, while another rumor had them seeking asylum in Britain. Of course, there was some discussion about outright execution, but the idea of putting the Romanovs to death was seen as a bit extreme. The provisional government would need loyalist cooperation to ensure a stable transition, and killing the royal family was one surefire way to turn loyalist support against them. For now, the royal family would remain prisoners of the provisional government. Nicholas was reunited with his family on March 9th. They were placed under permanent house arrest 
and spent the next eight months being shuffled around various locations to ensure their safety. In all, Nicholas, Alexandra, and their children were well treated, although their accommodations were often sparse when compared to their accustomed opulence. Outside of Russia, the end of Tsardom was met with popular support. As we talked about last episode, the Allies no longer had the embarrassing link to Romanov despotism. The United States became the first nation to recognize the provisional government, followed soon after by Britain and France. A democratic Russia was a powerful ally to have. The Allies also got additional encouragement when Kerensky announced the provisional government would continue the war to its fullest extent. Although, Kerensky would soon realize that reviving that patriotic spirit was like drawing blood from a cactus. So as we've seen, the first three months of 1917 were incredibly busy. With a new U-boat campaign on the go, the United States declaring war, and now a new government in Russia, 1917 was shaping up to be a year like no other. Sticking as best as we can to chronology, we find ourselves at the cusp of April 1917, one of the most important months of the war thus far. Next episode, we will be back on the Western Front to cover the Battle of Arras, another Anglo-French push to break the Western deadlock which began on April 2nd. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast, or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 73 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.